Who is this Jesus? The Gospel of Mark shows us. Four gospel accounts give us these perspectives on the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's gospel opens up with this cosmic context of who Jesus always has been eternally, the word. And Matthew's gospel opens up with this genealogy to lead up to Jesus. And Luke's gospel gives us this prophetic context for who Jesus is. And Mark's gospel opens up in a single sentence that if you believe it by the power of the Holy Spirit, your eternal destination is changed from the default for sinners like us, and that is hell, to heaven by the grace of God. Mark's gospel is concise. It is action-packed. None of the fluff, just the eternity trajectory changing action. It's the shortest gospel largely contained within the Gospel of Matthew, one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John comes from a totally different angle, but these four Gospels all combined give us a complete, beautiful picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke is straight to the point. If my wife and I were, were Gospel writers, she would be Mark. She can tell me about her whole day in a single word. Now, I can tell her about my whole day in a single hour if if I really rush it. (laughs) I'm far more loquacious than she. It's the one regard in which the two of us diverge from the stereotypical gender roles. I'm much more like Luke. She's much more like Mark. The books of Galatians and James were written first and then came the Gospels. Many of the original readers of the Gospel of Mark were illiterate. They would not be able to read the word for themselves for a few generations of Christianity. And so the structure of the book is for it to be read, often to people who could not read for themselves. And it opens up right away in a concise statement that changes everything and moves immediately from there into a word of prophecy and shows how it's fulfilled. The word immediately is going to come up over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And when it does, I want us to say amen. Because it shows somebody being saved immediately, a demon being cast out immediately, somebody being healed miraculously immediately, going about the work of ministry immediately. There's something to that. So as we embark on this journey through the Gospel of Mark together, let that minister to your soul as well, the common themes like the word immediately. Let their frequency and ubiquity throughout the text speak something to your soul We are not finished with the gospel. Even if you're one of those Christians who's been a Christian for 80 years and you're only 40. Right? If, if If you came hoping to come away with some fascinating, like, academic little tidbit, you know? Like, teach me something new. This better be new. That, that's the motive of many heretical teachings, by the way. 
is everybody's already said it. I just want to say something new. Don't. <laughs> say what it says. And don't say what it doesn't say. All right, check your PhDs at the door. And here's why. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's way cooler than your stupid doctorate. Don't come hoping to hear some brand new angle. I mean, maybe you will. But if all that this series does is remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is a colossal eternal success. Because you're not done with the gospel. No matter how wise you are, how many centuries you've been walking with God. You're not done with the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not this milestone in your past. It is a compass in your hand. And you need it. If, you, if you're like a just jaded, burned out, like Clint Eastwood Christian. <laughs> you need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even if all this is this review for you, praise God, it's a review of the thing that saves your soul forever. So by all means, bring people in who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ who have never heard it before. It's striking to me. Everybody thinks they know the gospel, especially people who, have, especially people who are critical of it. But how often we forget it. I'm struck as we go through this opening chapter together, as we view, review it together, I'm struck by how often like, demons are mentioned in the first chapter of Mark. I'd forgotten that. That struck me as I studied for this sermon. Bring people in who need to hear the gospel. And if you already know the gospel, let the gospel remind your soul of where it's headed. Because when we're reminded of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything else in this life, it just... It just shrinks and fades in comparison, doesn't it? Let's look at the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Tremendous words. In eight verses, we've seen the Holy Spirit, we've seen the Son of God, we've named the Father. We need the gospel of Mark. Verse eight, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, spoken by John the Baptist. 
This is tremendously important and often overlooked by Christians. Be baptized, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Literally translated, Yohane Hasodzo means John the Immerser. John the guy who dunks things. That's, that's kind of a cool basketball player nickname, I think it could be. And it, it carries with it tremendous implications. Like, that, that John the Baptist would make this proclamation, look, I baptize you with water. People were repenting from their sins, confessing their sins, just getting ready to meet the Messiah. He says, but he's gonna come. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. Sozo, Greek for immersed, submerged, covered completely in the Holy Spirit of God. That's verse eight. Verse one is the gospel encapsulated. The beginning of, I love, I love that Mark, in, in the, the beginning is, is literally the words, the beginning. <laughs> like the beginning of the gospel, is the first words are the beginning of the gospel. It's like Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. This is the beginning. <laughs> beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Please don't let these words just pass by and don't let, don't let their familiarity, don't let their familiarity cause you to be jaded. This is vitally important. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ meaning the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who'd been prophesied for centuries prior. It's Jesus. He's here. This breaks centuries of prophetic silence from God. And it's here. We have the name right there in the very first verse. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you're, some of you, are, if you have like a heresy pitchfork ready, you're going to be tempted to, ah, Campbell, like throw it at me when I say this, but let me, hear me out. Okay, son of God, the son of God. Did you know that there are multiple times in scripture actually where the idea of son of God is, is used to describe somebody, not just Jesus, okay? Pitchforks down, let me explain. <laughs> there are times, for example, in the book of Job where the angels are referred to as the sons of God. And in that instance, this, the word sons is not capitalized. Adam, for the sake of a theological teaching, is referred to as, like, as a son of God. But in this instance, this is important. The capitalization of the word son is important. He, this is a title born entirely and exclusively and only by Jesus, the one son of God. So it seems like this word soup of familiar Christian buzzwords, but it's actually everything. We see the son of God named in verse one, and we see the Holy Spirit of God named in verse eight. It's not possible to really believe verse one unless you have verse eight. It's not really possible to believe that Jesus is Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit who's named in verse eight. I wonder how many among us right now, you came here not because, not because you're a longtime member of Highlands Community Church, but because you were pressured to or because you're curious or you came here in your last rope or you came here looking for material for your blog to hate on Christians with. Welcome. You came here for any number of reasons and you see the Holy Spirit of God described in verse eight. I have spoken, I've led, I've led several militant atheists to faith in Christ in my life and one of the common denominators is this. They see the Holy Spirit at work long before our conversation even begins. I wonder how many are with us right now in this room who 
feel the Holy Spirit of God, though you haven't quite professed your belief in him just yet. Never forget, I've seen those, heard those same words multiple times from people who are militantly anti-Christian activist atheists who have said, I see the Holy Spirit at work in my life. Some of you have already experienced verse eight and it was so that you could now profess verse one. You cannot profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Lord in your life, unless the Holy Spirit of God enables you to do so. Here's, here's 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You can't believe verse 1 without verse 8. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is a miracle of the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that's tremendously important. If, if you've been to any number of services at Highlands Community Church, chances are you've heard Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9 is, is my favorite verse to go to in sharing the gospel because it's the only verse in the Bible that says, if this, then you will be saved. And it it's, stands atop a mountain of, of theological foundation work in Romans chapter 10, which is built on chapter 9, which is built on chapter 8, which is built on chapter 7, which is built on chapter 6. It, it is exquisite. The book of Romans is the most exquisite theological treatise in scripture, alongside Ephesians. I mean, they're both amazing. Romans 10.9 culminates all this theological work about God's salvation through his elect people, Israel, and now all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I have countless times shouted those words from the, at the top of my lungs. But ultimately what's happening when when we all together as a church, we proclaim Jesus is Lord together. Did you know that there may be somebody in the seat next to you who is proclaiming those words for the very first time, and when they do, it is a miracle of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, because they can't really proclaim that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit is making it possible for them. Now, can I speak to my theology nerd friends in the room? All right, I'm going to list some of the soteriological persuasions that exist. Soteriology means the study of how people are saved. And, and we, we take the names of a, of a bunch of dead dudes and we make them like these camps that we camp out in. I plant my flag in this camp, this camp, or whatever. And, and we have different views on how people are saved. Okay, just listen to the gobbledygook that's about to come out of my mouth as I just name some of the different schools of thought on this matter that only Christians care about and probably only a small percentage of Christians actually have an understand or know about. And many of them are just seminary theologian geeks, all right? We have Dortians and Calvinists and Amoraldians and Molinists and Arminians and I don't careists. <laughs> my wife's one of those. And we have different views on exactly how people are saved, but can I speak a conciliatory word straight from scripture? Do not discount the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. You cannot mentally ascend unto salvation and declare yourself saved. You can, you can, you can only go to the Father, the Father draws you. So wherever you stand, so theologically, it is nothing short of a miracle, the Holy Spirit of God. That when somebody confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, that is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. They can't do that without the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. You can't have belief in verse 1 without belief in verse 8. It is a miracle every time somebody confesses that Jesus is Lord. They are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and that's how they confess. 
That's what happens when somebody is saved. This erupts onto the scene, this, this bold, brash, camel hair wearing, bug eating dude, John the Baptist. And just for perspective, like this was the, the time that people waited between the close of the era of the, the prophets and the ends of the events described in the book of Malachi. Like those, took, those closed out and then 400 years go by before the birth of Jesus. And there erupts on the scene this big, brash, bold dude. And he's a Nazareth and he doesn't care what anybody thinks of him, which by the way, makes his statement all the more profound to me. John the Baptist could not give a rip about impressing anyone. All right, he did not care at all what people thought of him. Perhaps least of all, the Pharisees, the most important and respected and educated religious leaders of his day, which makes it all the more profound that he would say, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. Like there are huge cultural implications to that within the Hebrew culture. There's nothing nastier than somebody's foot in that culture. All right, footwear technology was not quite as advanced as it is today. And roads weren't exactly paved, okay? Are we talking? Do you get how gross this is? And John the Baptist, who did not care at all about, about decorum or social hierarchy, said, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. Do you see how profound that is? How, just how humble he's making himself compared to Jesus. This is... This is an eruption onto the scene of prophetic silence. Now, Burst, burst by the Holy Spirit of God that, that people waited 400 years to hear from God and now, bam, here it is. Like when you think back to the founding of, of this country, you think back to like the signing of the Declaration of Independence, it seems like it was forever ago, right? There's nothing on how long people waited to see prophetic silence broken. Do you understand? Over 400 years, that's way longer than the, the history of the United States so far. That's how long people waited and now, the silence is broken. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We need this. We need to be reminded of this. I, I needed to preach the gospel to myself yesterday. Okay, Christian, you're not done with the gospel. You need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Okay, pastors need to preach the gospel to ourselves. I was saved on April 16th, 1991. And I've believed the gospel ever since. I've been saved ever since, immutably saved. Praise God for the perseverance of the saints. It's excellent, right? But I needed to remind my heart of the gospel yesterday. I needed to preach the gospel to myself. I needed it. My son, Asher the Basher's birthday. Asher the Basher turned seven. And man, it was a great day. Um, I read this book, Growth Hacker Marketing. And it says that you don't try to make a product and then get the, the masses to like it. You figure out what they like and you craft a product that's marketable from the beginning. And so I said, I'm going to apply that to parenting. And Asher loves the Beatles. And so I spent like an hour and a half learning how to play Blackbird by Paul McCartney because he sings it sometimes when I pick him up from school. And so I learned Blackbird and I practiced it. You know, and I came up that morning, birthday boy, and I pick him up and I freak out, you know, and we're making breakfast. And, I, and if some of you have been to my house, you know, that you walk in the door and there's like this chair in the corner, in this reading corner. Well, I sat there because like this is where the acoustics are the best. You know, and I sat, Asher the Basher right there, and Austin was here, and Asa was here, and Autumn Grace was hanging by one hand from the balcony, and I had them here. 
And I, and I, I had the foot tap going, because it's not really Blackbird if the foot isn't going too. You know, that's a very important part of the song. And I, I, I started playing it. I got through the first verse, and through the first chorus, and a little Asher Basher, blue-eyed birthday boy, came, stood up and put his hand on my cheek and said, stop. <laughs> so I threw away growth hacker marketing <laughs> and just said, do you want to build Legos? He said, yeah. And so I just... I built four Lego sets yesterday. <laughs> My hands are really hurting now. <laughs> the guitar and the Legos. And it took, like, it took a, uh, a ton of his little, his little classmates and friends to the movie theater and watch the Lego movie. And, and like, the Lego movie got to me in ways that I won't admit publicly. Although I kind of just did. And the whole day, man, was just riddled with ice cream and cake and sugar and soda and awesomeness. But I kept thinking about his twin brother who died, like, all day long, all day long. And, and like, I, I feel so terrible as a parent because I want to I wanna rejoice in Asher as his own person. He has his own ministry. He has his own story. He's a NICU baby too. Like he also has his own miraculous story behind him. And I don't want that to fade. I don't want him to be forgotten in that. I wanna love him for who he is entirely because of his own worth. And I don't know if I'll ever really tell him about this, but there's always this figure next to him in my mind of what Aiden would look like today. And when it's prom night and he's there with his date by the fireplace and we're taking photos, I'm going to see Aiden and his date in my mind on his wedding date. There's going to be a spot in the lineup of groomsmen to me. I needed to remind my pastor's heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I believe that Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, for that reason, a scandal of grace, this sinner is saved and will go to heaven one day and be with my baby boy one day. And it's only by the gospel of Jesus Christ that that's possible. So that's why your pastor was preaching the gospel to himself all day yesterday. The gospel is not a milestone in our past. It's a compass in our hands. And it keeps us moving where we are headed, and that is toward heaven. Look at verse 21 with me. Verses 9 through 20 are exquisite. They're awesome. They will change your life. And I really want to preach them, but I won't. Join a small group. <laughs> and they went into Capernaum and immediately, say amen, amen. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, amen. Some of y'all already forgot. Only the second immediately. Come on. <laughs> there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, 
His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So now Mark moves from the background into the action of the story of Jesus' ministry. That verse, that verse 23, the, the word translated cried out in its original Greek context carries with it heavy connotations of fear. This demon is terrified of Jesus. Everybody is amazed at Jesus' teaching authority, okay, according to verse 23, but according to verse 24, the only people who actually knew who he was, the only beings who knew who Jesus was, were the demons. Everybody else was just astounded at this, this teacher who had his own authority to teach. You and I, we don't have authority on our own. This is partly why footnotes exist and bibliographies exist and works cited pages exist. It's why Turabian style of writing exists and the Chicago MLA style of writing exists. It's, it's why we have all these different styles of writing. It's why we can't just, although it'd be really easy, we can't just write a paper and say, who came up with this? What's your source on this? And this source on this is my own mind brain. Like papers would be really easy if the bibliography was just me. <laughs> but we can't do that because you just make up your own facts and then your whole paper is worthless. So instead, instead, instead you gotta do this, depending on the style, all right, depending on and what edition of the style, what edition of the manual your professor uses. You, you, uh, if you use, if you use uh, the, the parenthetical, okay, uh, citation, or you can, you can use like a footnote and sometimes that, that number is, is a certain, you know, uh, relation to the period given the, the, the style that you're using and then that number corresponds with a footnote and then a Microsoft Word, sometimes the default footnote will give you an indentation in the space after the number. You gotta delete that space. And, and then on the footnote, you have to have like the first name, middle initial period, last name of the author, okay, and then, and then period and then in italics, the title of the book, and then the colon, and then the, the subtitle, and then a comma, and then O parentheses, and then the city where the book was published, and then a colon, and then the publisher, and then a comma, and then the year, and then a close parentheses, and then a period, and then a space, and then the pages used, and then a period, shoot me in the face. <laughs> and that's just one footnote. And then you have your bibliography, and then you gotta swap the last name and the first name of the author. And there's a totally different style for books. We have no authority on our own. We have no authority. Look at the links we have to go through just to make a statement. But Jesus has his own authority. He's not like the scribes. He's the word of God alive. We've read the first verse of the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The beginning of the gospel of John also has a particularly capitalized word in it. That is word. Here we emphasize that he is the son of God. John's opening verse emphasizes that Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. That Jesus is the word of God, alive, living, and active. By his very birth, just by being born the way that he was born, he was a fulfillment of prophecies from the word of God. And then when he speaks, the words that he speaks add on to our understanding of the word of God. And then his death and his resurrection and the prophecies that followed added on to the word of God. He wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees of, the, of his day that have to say, as spoke, you have heard it said by Gamaliel, you have heard it said by Hillel. He just spoke and had authority. And everybody's amazed at that, but they're still missing it. They still don't know who Jesus is. It's quite probable that many of Jesus' own disciples didn't even fully get who he was until after the resurrection. 
Like he spoke multiple times over and over again. I'm the son of man as prophesied by Daniel. I'm gonna be crucified and three days later, raise up again. And they're told this multiple times over. Three times Jesus says this and they say, uh-huh. And then Jesus is crucified and they're like, ah, what happened? And then he resurrects from the dead. They're like, oh, I get it now. The first beings to catch on to what was happening were the demons. His own disciples didn't even get it until after the resurrection. So watch the way in which Jesus is, is so gracious with his disciples. Watch the way that he works with them in such an understanding way. And, and notice, notice all the demonological stuff that happens in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And where does this demon activity happen? It's not like at the satanic temple in the middle of town square. It's, not, it's, it's in the synagogue. That's where these demons are found. And, and you notice this how utterly terrified the demons are. Look at this throughout scripture. Look at James 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This was a militaristic act of domination and destruction. Look at Luke 4, 41. And the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Luke 8, 30 through 33. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to come command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. Demons knew that they were invisible to other people but not to Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is the king and even the demons know it. Look at verse 29 with me. And immediately, amen, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately, now hang on a second, hang on a second. I, I, this next amen, you, you got, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to bring conviction on yourself, okay? You understand what's happening in this one, right? They, they immediately are, are, they're immediately telling Jesus about this woman. They're immediately bringing someone to Jesus to be healed, uh, bring, bringing Jesus to this woman to be healed, okay? Now, some of you, if you, you're not in the position that I was describing a couple sermons ago where like it's day one, it's orientation, like you just got hired on, you just interviewed, I don't know any of these people, I don't wanna kick the door down and have an altar call in my first minute, right? That's not where you're at. If you're honest, like you have deep friendships that go back decades and you're still procrastinating bringing up the gospel, Okay, so when we look at a text about people just immediately connecting Jesus to somebody who needs them, make sure that you don't amen conviction on yourself, okay? So if you so dare. And immediately, amen, <laughs> there's fewer amens that time. <laughs> they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. I think all the, the word picture there is so deliberate. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a picture of what happens when somebody's saved. That Jesus reaches down and this ill woman and lifts her up and then she immediately begins to serve. I think that's a picture of what happens when we're saved. There in our sin and our affliction, Jesus reaches down and lifts us up and then immediately we begin to serve. 
We begin to use our spiritual gifts and serve in the church. All the language here is deliberate. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You know that at one point in Jesus' ministry, there are at least two demons that actually, once again, they shriek. Anytime demons speak in scripture, it's usually in a horrified shriek. There's something to that. There are at least two demons that see Jesus and they they freak out and they ask him if he has come to, to torment them before the appointed time. Look at this. It's in Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Before the time? There are huge theological implications to that. Before the appointed time. Do you remember what it was like when you were a teenager and like you had the house to yourself for like an afternoon and an evening and you had chores to do you know, like you told, you told your parents like you'd have the grass cut and you'd have like the dishes done. And so you invite your cousin Chad, right? Your cousin Chad? Over and you guys play a call of duty and you do really well and you're at like the second to last level and then you notice there are like headlights coming down the driveway. Do you know that feeling? <laughs> That feeling right there has nothing on the feeling these demons had when they saw Jesus. Is it, is it that time? Is it that time? Because they know that there is this time set. They know that their destruction is prophesied. Their doom has been already determined by God the Father. Only God the Father knows the time or the hour. And so they see Jesus and they freak out. Saying, is it, is it already time? Have you come to torment us? They are utterly petrified of Jesus because of what he symbolizes, what he reminds them of, who he is, and what is coming, what's been prophesied over them. Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. If Jesus got off on his own to pray, so should we. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You could believe that Jesus performed every single healing described in the New Testament and still not be saved. You could fully believe in every one of his miracles You can memorize their accounts and be able to recite them in seven languages, but if you don't know why Jesus healed people, you could still not be saved. He was far more than merely the greatest worker of miracles ever. If if you believe only in the miracles of Jesus and nothing else, only that he broke the laws of physics repeatedly, you have a really diminished view of who Jesus actually is. He tells us overtly why he came. It was right there in verse 38. Did you catch it? 
Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He was far more than merely a worker of miracles. Far more than that. Do you see Simon, also known as Peter, also known as Cephas, comes up and he's sort of the spokesman. He's sort of the, the, delegated, like the, the delegated spokesman for the disciples. And he often makes a fool of himself. And he would come up and ask these questions. They would all kind of rally together. And then Peter would be the one, okay, this is what we're gonna say? Okay, <clears throat> all right, Jesus. And he says these boneheaded things over and over again. Like this is sort of one of them. There's this huge crowd gathering and everybody's there to see the next show. And, and he walks up to Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. Wristwatches don't even exist yet, but like they're, they're frustrated with Jesus. They go back to the green room, review the tech sheet. Yeah, he's supposed to be on stage right now. We've got the crowd warmed up, Jesus. And then Jesus says, let's go to the next town. This beloved bonehead Peter, by the way, is gonna deliver the sermon that would launch the New Testament church in the book of Acts. I mean, just watch, just watch. Jesus is so gracious to Peter all the time. Right? There's one point in which Jesus gets really harsh with Peter, but the majority of the time, he's very gracious and very patient, and this is an example of that. He did not come merely to heal people because everyone whom Jesus physically healed would ultimately die anyway. He was far more than just a healer. That's why he would heal people and then shush them. He would heal people and then shh, don't tell anybody. Because what he came to do was far greater than merely physics-defying miracles and medical science-defying healings. As awesome as that is, it has nothing on the real reason that Jesus came. It has nothing on the real reason why Jesus came. Look at the next miracle as we close, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Meaning he would be made ceremonially clean. This is out of respect for the Old Testament law. And to make this man ceremonially clean. In their original context, he would have to shout out, unclean, unclean. So his shame would enter the room before he would. Imagine what that does to someone's heart. No matter how severe his leprosy was, it was the kind from which etymologically the name leprosy gets its name, the scaliness, or if it was so severe that he was losing fingers and, and losing his nose and ears. Whichever the case, this man was isolated he was ceremonially unclean, and in his context, the people around him cared more about ceremonial cleanliness than they cared about clean consciences. Hello. And so this man was isolated. No one ever touched him, but Jesus touches him. Jesus touched him. And did you see the deep theology this man has? He didn't say, if you're able, you can make me clean. What did he say? If you will, you can make me clean. I know that you're able to heal me, Jesus. I know that you're able. I know that you're able, but will you? 
I know that you're able, but will you watch as we go through Mark? You're gonna see somebody also approach Jesus with a prayer that says, if you can, if you're able, but that's not this man's prayer. This leper already knows that Jesus is able. He asks, will you, will you? And then Jesus shushes him and look what happens in verse 45. He doesn't obey the shush and then it, it, it causes problems, frankly, look. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus didn't just come to heal people. In fact, his physical healings would get in the way of what he really came to do. Right? The healings were only for a lifetime. Salvation is eternal. So I, I have great awe and respect for the miracles of Jesus. But salvation, salvation eats healing for lunch. I believe that God still heals today. I believe we can still go before God and pray to him and ask him to heal people today. We've studied the book of James. We see chapter five that we pray for healing. So by all means, I will pray for you that you'd be healed. But far more importantly, I pray that you're saved. Not just healed for now, but saved forever. Jesus didn't just come to heal the sick. He tells us exactly why he came in this text. To preach the gospel so that you would hear it today and be saved you then and your salvation in this room right now is a greater miracle than any of the physical healings that Jesus performed on this earth. By all means, believe in the miracles themselves, but more importantly, believe that Jesus is Lord. By that same Holy Spirit described in verse eight, believe in that same son described in verse one. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in verse two, believing in the ministry of John the Baptist in verses three through seven, believing that he could heal you just as he healed Simon's mother-in-law, believing that he could cast out evil, the same evil that you see at work in our world today and then the demons that he exercises in this text and like the leper, come to him knowing that if, if it's his will, he can make you clean. Moreover, look at what he does and the leper's heart reaches out and touches him and makes him clean and say, I need Jesus to do in my soul what he did in that leper's body. Reach out. Touch me, make me clean. This is who Jesus is. Think about what this miracle, the healing of the leper, indicates about the character of Jesus, the heart of God. And view with great skepticism then our modern trend of calling the fundamental belief in this Jesus hate. Woe to us, Isaiah the prophet says, we call good evil and evil good. We've just met Jesus in this text. This is what Jesus says. He reaches out and picks up people who are afflicted and makes them well. Reaches out and touches the leper that nobody else will touch and makes him clean. That's Jesus. Woe to us if we call that Jesus evil. We call that practice hate. Or the more grammatically correct, hatred because it's a noun. This drives me crazy. Does anybody else notice that? Sorry. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that includes you. If you see that you and your heart need Jesus to do in your life what he did in that leper, the Holy Spirit of God is drawing upon you right now. Would you pray out to God and give your life to Jesus today upon the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Mark?
Let's go before the Lord because I believe that God's gonna save sinners and perform the greatest miracle in eternity in this room, amen? God, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he is the one who brings the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that the prophet, John the Baptist, the, the, the forerunner to the Messiah, the herald of the Christ was right, that Jesus is that fulfillment of prophecy, that, that Jesus is the one who is the scourge of demons, that he's the one who, who heals the lame, and that he can touch the leper and make us clean. And so Jesus, I believe these words that have been read over me are true. I believe they're all true. I feel right now your Holy Spirit at work in my heart. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe, I believe, I believe. What God, would you reach out? Would you touch this sinner? Would you make me clean? I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church in the Holy Spirit of the living God, proclaim it, Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Now let me be saved, Jesus. Let me be saved, Jesus. Let me be saved, Jesus. Amen.